Uh, just a, a question, first of all. Um, put up your hand if you actually read through the book of James in the last week or so. Uh, a couple of you. Let, let me encourage you to do that. Uh, I didn't mean to embarrass anyone by that, but um, uh, let me encourage you to read through the book of James, to read it all, like it's pretty short, and for the simple reason that if you got a letter from a friend, you wouldn't just read the first paragraph and leave it at that. Uh, the best thing to do with any book of the Bible is to read it as a whole and then come back and read the little bits and pieces. Uh, if you're reading a letter, you want to know where it starts, what's in the middle, how it finishes, so that as you read through any part of it, and we'll be taking eight weeks, not terribly long, we'll be finished by Easter, to work through this letter, you'll kind of know the trajectory. And I think that you'll get more out of each passage if you see it in the light of the whole context. Um, a couple of things to start with. Uh, first of all, this is a letter that's said to be from James. Uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's clearly a Christian. Who is this James? Well, probably the two candidates are James, the brother of John, and James, the brother of Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts, you see that they're both significant. Uh, in the early church, but you've only got to get to chapter 12 to realise that James, the brother of John, doesn't live very long. Uh, he's killed in Acts chapter 12, but James, the brother of Jesus, continues to exercise a very important role in the life of the early church. And I take it that we have here a letter written by the half-brother of Jesus. And I say half-brother because, of course, Jesus came into this world as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit and Mary, whereas any other brothers and sisters, it would have been Joseph and Mary. And so here, I take it, is James, the brother of Jesus. But as with all parts of Scripture, what we're dealing with here is not simply the words of a Christian. It's not simply wise words of a servant of Jesus. But we believe that the Scriptures are God speaking to us through humans and in the human circumstance. So there'll be things about James that you'll see the personality kind of coming through this letter. But it's not something just to put at the side and go, well, that was James' opinion. No, this is the opinion of the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit. So we've got James, the author, uh, who is he writing to? Well, it says here, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. And at first glance, that kind of sounds like he's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. But if you've worked your way through the Old Testament, you'll know that by this stage, there are no longer 12 tribes of Israel. In 722 BC, the 10 northern tribes were pretty much decimated by the Assyrians and it's much more likely that he's using this language of the 12 tribes to kind of be a metaphor for the people of God. But it's not simply the 12 tribes. Notice it's the 12 tribes scattered. Scattered. In, and uh, older English says dispersed. This is the dispersion. And my thinking on this is that what he's doing is writing to people who are not yet gathered home. They're still on a journey. They're still dispersed and they're yet to be gathered. And he wants to ensure that these people 
go the distance and are there on that day. Uh, a couple of tips as to who he's writing to. As you read through the letter, you'll notice again and again and again these sorts of words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. To my dear brothers and sisters. To the believers in this area. In the original, it's each time to the brothers. But of course, we, we understand that it's not simply to the male Christians. It's, it's to the brothers and sisters. It's to those who believe in Jesus. It's very much a letter to those who belong to the family of God. And that makes it all the more remarkable when we get to chapter 4 and he speaks to people who are adulterous in chapter 4, verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? But again and again through every chapter, and I've given you the reference there, and I actually missed one because in English it's been translated as believers. He's writing in every chapter to the brothers and sisters. It's a personal family letter. Now, I recommend that when you read this, you actually focus not only on the beginning, but also very specifically on the end. Um, a good tip if you're reading an academic book is to read the introduction and to read the conclusion. In fact, if you want to skim read any book, read the first part of a chapter and read the end of the chapter and you'll have a rough idea where you're headed. And then you can look for the details in the middle. And it's helpful for us to do that with James. And I'm going to take you to the last two verses of the book of James. It says here in chapter 5, verse 19, My brothers and sisters, if you, one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What we'll see as we look through this book of James is that James wants Christians to last the distance. And that'll mean listening to God and it'll mean listening to each other. It'll mean caring enough to speak up. It'll mean recognising the importance of stuff so that it's not simply theoretical, it changes the way you think, the way you speak and the way that you act. Well, let's get into this first chapter. Uh, we'll move through this in little chunks over the next eight weeks. First of all, he says in uh, verse three, consider verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, that's a challenging thing to say to someone, isn't it? Um, you're going through a hard time, life is difficult. Well, consider it pure joy. Now, how do you do that? Is it kind of You've got to take an unreality pill. Is that what's going on? You, you've got to pretend about life. How can you go through hard times and consider it to be pure joy? Well, I think the key is in the word consider. He doesn't simply say, be joyful. He doesn't say, feel joyful. He can says, consider it pure joy. In other words, he wants them to apply their thinking so that their thinking can shape their response to what they're going through. James will engage their minds. As we think about life and the circumstances of life, we will go through things that are incredibly tough. Um, as uh, Jackie was, do you call that an interview when you do all the talking? I'm not sure. But um, as uh, 
as we were getting insights into Jackie's life, there would have been so many things that are tough. Imagine for many of you, there have been really difficult circumstances. Maybe things have happened to you that you wouldn't wish on anybody else. Perhaps for some of you, there have been health issues. For others, there have been uh, relationship problems. Maybe some things to do with work. Maybe broken relationships, extended family. All sorts of things can go wrong. How is it that we consider these things to be pure joy? Well, we've got to follow the logic of what he's saying. He says, because there's a reason for this. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So you can consider this to be joy if you know that it's part of a process. And that process is leading to maturity. I'll give you an example of this. I've actually considered it to be pure joy on times when someone has stuck a large needle into my mouth. I consider it to be pure joy when someone gets out a drill and they apply it into a tooth. I've even considered it to be pure joy when they've tried to get a tooth out and they've virtually almost broken my jaw in the process. Why? Because there's been so much pain that has led me to the dentist in the first place that I know what they are doing, as difficult and tough as it might be, it's leading to a better outcome. And so everything about my feelings might be, ah, this is horrible, I hate the sound of that drill, I hate the feel of that needle, that short-term pain, I just can't cope with it. Yes, I can. And I can consider it joy because afterwards... Once that root canal is done, once that crown is in place, I don't suffer through the pain anymore. And I think from a spiritual perspective, this is the way we need to see life, recognising that God is at work in the tough things. Yeah, it's, it's hard, and yes, it, it kind of sucks, and, and no, we wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but we can be joyful in this because God is at work. And the way that he's at work, it's, it's a little bit like... He's helping us to apply our faith in action. And if I can illustrate this, it's a little bit like developing faith muscles. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, not lacking anything. The testing of your faith producing perseverance. It's like developing faith muscles. Um, some of you go to the gym. Quick show of hands. Okay, who are the buff ones? Warwick, a couple of others. Um, it's a good thing to go to the gym. I personally like watching uh, YouTube videos of exercise. Um, it, it, it helps me to, uh, to get fit, to sit down there with a, with a Coke and, and watch YouTube exercise. It doesn't work, does it, when you do that? Now, it's better to go to the gym and, and watch those people with the mirrors going... Sorry, that was just for the video. Um, if you're listening... You really ought to watch it next time. Um, but you see, unless you experience resistance, you don't develop the muscle. And unless there's something to put your faith in, tough circumstances and a God who can be trusted, then you don't develop the faith. It's faith in action that grows strong that leads to the perseverance, that develops the maturity. 
And so with that in mind, I consider it to be joy. I, I, I don't like it, but I can be joyful in this because joy is not just a feeling, it's a mindset. A mindset of knowing that my loving Father is working through these things to make me the person that he wants me to be. But then sometimes I don't get it. And sometimes I'm far from feeling and thinking that this is something to rejoice in. And so James goes on in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I'm a little disappointed in the NIV translation on this one, simply because it's chopped out the word but at the start of the verse. So if you're annotating your Bible, you can stick a little but in the front there. Um, because it flows from what he's saying. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is how you need to consider things, right? But if you lack wisdom, because it's tough to see things like this, then you should ask God, and God gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I, I, I think verse 5 is probably often a, a verse taken out of context. You, you lack wisdom? We'll pray for wisdom. And look, if you lack wisdom, pray for wisdom. But I think what James is saying particularly is if you can't see that God is at work in the tough times, pray. Pray that God will help you to see that. Pray that God will enable you to put your faith in him in these difficult times. Pray that you'll see the outcome, that you're growing in perseverance and becoming more like Jesus. And if you struggle with that, just ask God and he will respond. Verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in what they do. Now, these verses, I think, are, are a little bit troublesome. But notice verse 6 starts with but again. This time they did leave it in. And it's continuing the argument. And it's saying, if you're struggling to get a handle on this, if you don't see it God's way, ask God to help you with it. But when you ask, you've got to believe and not doubt. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean you've got to push aside any thoughts that might be doubting or negative? Does it mean you've kind of got to screw up enough confidence so that you, you, you say, no, I've just got faith, I don't have any reservations whatsoever? Well, you... you it could be that, but I don't think that's what it's saying. Because there's a very key word in this, and it's in verse 8. Such a person is double-minded. It's actually a compound word. They're, they're double-minded. And it's a word that comes up again in James. I think it's an important word, um, and some context will help us to know how to respond. Come to chapter 4 and verse 8. If you've got a Bible there, if, if not, just listen and I'll read it out. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So it's a call to turn from double-mindedness. What is the double-mindedness? Well, if you go back a few verses, I think you get a description as to what it looks like. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
So the idea here, I think, of double-mindedness in chapter 4 is that you're, you're praying, but not that you might be able to have the mind of God and understand more clearly how God is at work, that you can be joyful, but you're praying so that you yourself will benefit. And there is absolutely no way that you can be having a foot in both camps. Either you are trusting God and recognising that you need him, or you are not trusting God and you've got your own agenda and your own motives and maybe you're trusting in other things and you can't have a bit of each. Um, if, if you want an image for this one, it's not in James, but try putting your feet on a boat and putting your feet on a pier and pushing the boat out. Um, it'll only work for so long. Uh, for some of you, it'll work a little bit longer than it will for me. But it won't be comfortable and it won't work. And I think what he's got in mind here when he writes them is saying, when you ask God to help you with these things, it's not for your own sake that you do this. It's not so that you can feel better. It's actually got to do with recognising God and who God is and that he's at work for your joy, for your sake, for your steadfastness, for your maturity, for your perseverance. This is what God is doing. So turn from your double-mindedness and ask God to help you to be single-mindedly depending upon him that you might live through the tough times trusting that he is at work. I think that's what he's saying. Well, let's, let's uh, continue with, um, with James. Um, and I think it's more of the same. And why do I think that? Well, because this is the second but that's missing. <laughs> um, and uh, verse 9 should literally start, but believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich, they've left that one in, should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Um, what, what he's asking us to do, I take it, is fundamentally to see things God's way. So this wisdom that we're praying for will, in part, help us to see beyond the circumstances to the reality of what God's doing. So in, in verse 9, it says there, if you're in humble circumstances, take pride in your high position. The humble circumstance might be the observable, what you can see. Here is a, a person, they're, they're not particularly attractive, they're not particularly successful, they don't have many earthly things, they're, they're not people that others would look up to, but they are in a high position because they are children of the Father in heaven. They are brothers and sisters with those in God's family. They have a an inheritance that's waiting in heaven kept for them. God has set aside his blessings, which in Paul's language are already ours in the spiritual realm. That, that's an incredibly high position to have. But by contrast, if you 
feel that you've got a lot, like, you know, you're, you're wealthy in this life, you're attractive, you're successful, you've, you've got everything going for you, then be careful because this pride can be seriously dangerous. And you need to remember, successful person, that one day everything that you put your pride in will be taken away from you. You've got a great house? Who cares? You're not going to live in it forever. You've got a wonderful set of toys? Who cares? Can't take them with you. You see, the world measures people by all kinds of externals, tangible things, things that you can buy, things that you can touch and taste and smell and wear and see and live in and travel to. That's the way the world measures us. But we need to realise that there's a deeper reality at work and, and these things will fade away even while we go about our business. See, true blessing, verse 12, is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's not what the world calls blessing, though, is it? Um, we've got some friends staying with us at the moment. Um, uh, one young woman here from South Africa, and we were chatting about a a part outside of Cape Town, a, what we'd call a shantytown, Kailicha. And people there have next to no worldly possessions, but those who know the Lord Jesus, they are wealthy beyond measure. They're not clinging on to the things that they have gathered around them. They've pretty much only got what they need to live. But in Christ, we have riches that will never fade. And the wise person recognises the difference. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because they know that having stood the test, they'll receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And trials and temptations, they will come, but we need the right perspective. When tempted, verse 13, no one should say, God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. See, these things really matter. They they matter more as you go through life than they seem to when you begin life. I remember um, the passage of the Bible that I preached the most in a year that I was working with John Chapman as an itinerant evangelist was the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. I, I could still quote it verbatim. The person has everything laid up for their future and they think that they're just going to put their feet up and enjoy life from now on. It's pretty much a parable of Australia. And God says to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you and then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? It was very easy to preach that as somebody who had nothing. 
And now I have a house and a car and a motorbike and a camper trailer. And we live in a beautiful part of the world and we're not wanting for food or basic needs. We're able to pay others to do things that we might enjoy. We're able to go out. We're able to travel. We're able to holiday. Now we have so many things and it's so easy to get sucked into a trajectory that our world has said is beautiful and pleasurable and to be envied and we really should love ourselves and make sure that we get this where we store up everything for ourselves so that we can live and enjoy it in our retirement. I feel that pressure way more now. But Jesus' perspective, as James teaches us here, is that we can so easily be dragged away by evil desires. And evil desire, we need to realise, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And as Jesus said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? It's dangerous to take pride in the things that we have. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, James says. Every good and perfect gift is from above. See, he's not against being wealthy. He's not against having stuff. He's not against things going well. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. But he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. The true blessing that comes from God is of being born again into his family. And we, I take it, need to be reminded of that day by day by day. Because our world doesn't tell us that true blessing is to be found in the family of God. It rather gives us a message where we're much more likely to envy those around about us. And we need to consider these things. We need to apply our mind to these things. See, if we are to live as Christians in the cut and thrust of life that we are in, we need to consider. We need to change our thinking. We need to hit the pause button and ask the question, what's going on here? What's happening to me here? What's going on around about me? What is everybody telling me to do? Who do people want me to be? Who do I want to be? What does God want me to be? We, we need to hit pause and consider. And I'm going to give you three points of application. That's the first one. Consider. Secondly, we are called to grow. We're called to grow faith, to put on faith muscle. And we'll see more of this over the next couple of chapters. But the way to put on faith muscle is to trust God when things are difficult. Um, in fact, that's when you know that it's actually faith and not simply intellectual assent. I'll possibly share a little bit more of this story, and for some of you, you know a fair bit about it, but when I was, um, and I was, diagnosed with cancer 12 years ago and didn't think that I would live particularly long, what happened in the weeks that followed was me having to work out whether what I believed in theory, I now believed in reality. Whether the, 
the, the knowledge that I had of God was actually a real God who could be trusted, who was there, who I could pray to. Whether, whether there was substance to prayer, whether it wasn't just mouthing wishful thoughts, whether it was communicating with a being who cared about me, who could and would respond. That was putting faith into action. That's what it was. It was growing faith muscle. And we're all called to do that. And that's how we can consider it to be joy. Because if we go through life without any tests, any challenges, any temptations, any trials, any difficulties, we will not be growing faith muscles. And I think that's why God allows us to go through so much of what we go through. is because he wants us to experience the joy of trusting him. So consider, grow, and of course right at the heart of this passage is to pray. Prayer is the expression of faith. And sometimes it can be very weak, but that's okay. There's a man in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, who says, I do believe, but please help my unbelief. I'm very glad those verses are in the Bible. Because for me, that, that's kind of often how I come before God. I, I believe, but please help me to believe. And, and, and I hope and pray that it's not double-mindedness. It's not that I want to buck each way. But I need to be wary of that as well. To, to give intellectual assent to, to trusting in God. But deep down, I'm really trusting in my own competence or in my own bank account, or in my own arrangements, or my own relationships. Not, God's given me those things, but that I might trust him, not myself. Pray that, that God will help me to see things the way that he wants me to see them. Pray that I might have wisdom. Pray that I will see things his way, so that I might live his way. Friends, I think this book, this letter, is going to be helpful to any one of you who wants to still be Christian when you die. It's a bit like a half-time talk at the footy. Um, you're doing okay. I know sometimes you're getting smashed. Um, but hey, I've seen the score at the end and we win as long as we keep playing. Thank you.